Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The chill of the night air was bitingly cold against the exposed skin of my face. A graveyard is never really a pleasant place to be but it's an especially uncomfortable location on a cold, dark night. I had dressed warmly, but the ominous feeling of the graveyard that night seemed to seep through my clothes and freeze my whole body. It was as if the decaying inhabitants of the grounds were warning me away before I could complete my task. The bag I had brought with me contained five black candles matches, a photograph, a vial of murky liquid, and a sheet of paper containing the words I needed for the ritual I was about to complete. I was more than a little afraid of the task ahead of me, but I couldn't move on with my life until I had closure with Marcus. What you're asking for is not natural, the old woman said. Her wrinkled face was set in a look of disapproval, and her black eyes seemed to stare right through me. I know it isn't, but it has to be done. I can't move forward until I talk to him one last time, I pleaded with her. I had told her about my wish to speak with my dead boyfriend one last time before I married my fiancé. My boyfriend Marcus had died in a car accident on his way home from work, and six months later, I had met Sam and eventually fallen in love. Now a year later, I wanted to speak to Marcus one last time and gain his approval before the wedding. The old woman sighed, 
rose shakily from her seat on the porch and motioned for me to follow her into the house. The old woman was known as Miss Claudette, and the people in my town regarded her with a mixture of fear and respect for her powers as a witch. Of course, if you asked anyone in a straightforward manner if Miss Claudette was a witch, they would most likely scoff and ridicule you for even asking. But these same people could be seen leaving her house with oddly shaped packages or vials of strange liquids. I followed her into the parlor of the house where she disappeared behind a shelf crammed with jars, bottles, bags, and various containers filled with unknown substances. In truth, the house made me nervous. The parlor was lit only by candlelight, and the room was filled with old leather books with Latin inscriptions, strange-looking artifacts, and photographs depicting several generations of grim-faced women with black eyes. I listened to Miss Claudette rustling around behind the shelf and wondered if what I was asking for could actually be done. The logical part of me said that all of this was nonsense, and I would never speak with Marcus again. However, the less logical side of me urged me to try. Miss Claudette emerged from behind the shelf carrying a bag filled with the things I would need for the ritual. She handed me the bag reluctantly. You will find five black candles, matches, a potion, and the words you need to complete your foolhardy task. You'll also need a photograph of the dead one you seek to raise, she said dryly. All you have to do is light the candles, pour the potion over the grave, and speak the words on the paper. I took the bag from her, thanked her, and turned to leave. But she wasn't through with what she had to say. I've never turned anyone away who was in need of my services. But what you're doing is foolish, girl. Throw away any misconceptions you have about the dead being enlightened or pure. That bastard will be the same hard-hearted man he always was, she said coldly. I was startled by her words and slightly indignant. I loved Marcus, and he loved me. You don't know anything about him or our relationship, I said. She fixed me in that piercing stare until I began to fidget. I know a lot of things, girl. I know that man would have given you nothing but misery every day of your life if you would have married him. He cared for no one except for himself. I know that as well as my own name. Now I'm not the only one who saw the way he jerked you around or heard the way he talked to you when he thought no one could hear. And if you want my advice, you leave the bastard to rot, she said walking back into her house and shutting the door forcefully. I was rooted to my spot in disbelief at the speech she had given me. Memories of a raised voice and hands that could turn from gentle to rough in the blink of an eye came to the surface, and I shook my head to clear my thoughts. 
Of course, Marcus's temper could get out of control, but I never doubted that he loved me. He was my first love, and I was sure he would support my decision to marry Sam and to be happy again. I arranged the candles around the grave and lit them one by one. I popped Marcus's photograph against the tombstone and poured the vial of liquid over the grave. The liquid hissed as it met the ground and the earth seemed to bubble where it fell. I took a deep breath and unfolded the paper Miss Claudette had given me. The air seemed to have gone still, and everything seemed too quiet. Unease began to wash over me. I could forget the whole thing, walk away and marry Sam without stirring the dead, but at the same time memories of Marcus bombarded me. Memories of Marcus smiling at me, laughing at something I said or done, holding me close to him as we cuddled together, or whispering, always in my ear when I jokingly asked how long he would love me. In my heart of hearts, I felt that I needed his approval in order to fully move on with marrying Sam. I cleared my throat and read the words on the paper. I call upon you, spirit. Rise from the earth. Speak with me and heed my words. I listened to the stillness around me, waiting for my words to take effect. The silence was so heavy, it seemed to press down on me, making me feel claustrophobic and anxious. A vague stirring sound seemed to come from deep within the ground in front of me. I stepped back as the ground began to tremble, and the once solid earth began to crack. I watched in fascinated horror as a decayed hand slowly pushed through the dirt surface. My stomach clenched when I noticed the clasp ring Marcus always wore on the ring finger of the hand. I was unable to move or speak, and as I watched, another hand emerged. Then the head and shoulders of the thing from under the ground broke the surface. As the decayed form that was once Marcus pulled himself from the grave and stood upright, I began to regret what I had just done. The thing shook the dirt off itself and stretched its arms and legs slowly, flexing its fingers and turning its head from side to side, as if to make sure all its pieces were still in working order. I looked on in horror as the moon came out from behind a cloud and fully illuminated the being in front of me. It was Marcus, but at the same time it wasn't Marcus. The potion had been unable to fully restore him to lifelike state. His once thick brown hair was matted and full of dirt. The skin on his face was decayed, and I could see his skull through missing patches of skin on his forehead. His once alert brown eyes were sunken back into his head, and a small growth of mold was visible on his lower lip. The rest of the body was, thankfully, mostly covered by ripped clothing, but the way his clothing hung to him suggested he was little more than just bones. I tried to speak, and a little choked noise was all I could manage. 
Marcus turned to focus on me, his sunken eyes lighting up in recognition. Sarah, he spoke in a gravelly voice that sounded as if his throat were full of the earth he was buried in. I was rooted to the spot and could only watch helplessly as he made his slow, stumbling way towards me. The closer he got, the stronger the stench of death and decay became. The smell was enough to make me gag, but I was still immobile with terror. He stopped in front of me, and I stared into his sunken eyes with wide eyes of terror. He lifted one hand slowly to graze the side of my face and to run his fingers through my hair. I shuddered at the touch of his cold flesh against my cheek and fought to find my voice. Marcus, I came here because I needed to talk to you one last time, I said shakily. He stared at me in silence and I was unsure if he had been able to comprehend anything I had said. But then he leaned down close to my face, and just as I realized what was going to happen, I tried to turn my head, but it was too late. His deathly cold lips met mine, and it took everything I had not to scream as I remembered the patch of mold on his lower lip. I forced my hands to cooperate, and I reached up to push him away. In a sudden flash of motion, he grabbed my left wrist with all the strength he had while he was alive. His eyes narrowed as they locked on to my new engagement ring. What is this? he demanded coldly. Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about, I said as I tried to pull free of his grasp. It's been almost two years since you died and I met a really nice man named Sam. We're in love and I want to marry him, but I want your blessing. I knew you would want me to be happy, but I wanted to talk to you one last time before I went on with the wedding. I rambled. I watched as his face softened, and he smiled down at me. I smiled back in relief. Sarah? Do you remember what we used to say after telling each other that we loved each other? He asked me in that eerie, choked voice. Always? I asked. Always, he said before locking his hands around my throat with lightning speed. Panic exploded through my brain as I struggled for breath, kicking and clawing at him with as much strength as I could muster. You said always, he said accusingly, digging his thumbs deeper into my windpipe. I was no longer getting any air, and my vision was beginning to go black. I could no longer feel his thumbs at my throat. I was drifting. Miss Claudette found the grave without much trouble. The telltale black candles and the photograph of that dead bastard were still at the grave. The ground looked undisturbed in the early morning light. But Miss Claudette knew there were now two bodies in the grave. She sighed and shook her head and began gathering up the candles and the photograph. What did that stupid girl expect? She wondered as she walked away from the grave. Once a hateful bastard, 
always a hateful bastard. I smelled the coal smoke before I opened my eyes. For a moment, I was eight again, in the shop where my grandfather repaired motors. I used to sit by his old stove and watch him work. Hannah, what's the piston firing order of a small block Chevrolet? He'd ask, and I'd recite, 18436572. He'd laugh and toss me one of the snack-sized Hershey bars he kept in his toolbox. But the lurching and pitching, where was I? Opening my eyes took more effort than it should have. My head felt laden, leaning against something cool and smooth. Finally, I cracked my eyelids. Scenery whizzed by outside. Lush green mountains, a clear blue sky. Where was I? I couldn't think. I struggled to raise my head, but immediately fell back against my seat. Was I on a train? I want my mama. A little voice whimpered and I managed to raise my head to look at the seat across from me. A girl about four lay on it, sucking her thumb. She seemed as lethargic as I felt. She also looked familiar, but I couldn't think. My head throbbed and I felt queasy. Someone moved swiftly down the aisle, a lady in a bright blue uniform. She knelt beside the girl. It's okay, sweetie. You'll see your mama soon. I tried to get her attention. She whipped her head around and I cried out. Her eyes were as black as coal. But I blinked and it was gone. She looked at me with concern in her sky blue eyes. Are you okay? My head. Well, it's probably the smoke from the train, she said. And then she walked away. Someone groaned to my right. A blonde guy about my age slumped forward. He turned and squinted at me. Jake? I whispered. I am Jake, he said as if it had just occurred to him. What? I, d I don't know. He closed his eyes. I remembered him somehow. A number seven on a black jersey. I pictured him at a locker. Helping me open mine, and I knew without being able to see it clearly that the baseball cap he wore backwards had a red sock symbol on it. Looking beyond him, out his window, I tried to recall where I'd been just before the train. I'm gonna be sick, he said and struggled to his feet. He made it halfway down the aisle before the lady in blue stopped him. Please return to your seat, she said. Restroom, he muttered. I'm sick. It'll pass. She said cheerfully and tried to pull him back. He shook her hand off and lurched down the aisle. At the end, he disappeared into a door to his left. The lady in blue looked anxious. She glanced at the other passengers, but no one else seemed strong enough to stand. Lips pursed. She waited for him. Finally, the door opened and he staggered out, pale and red-eyed. He looked annoyed to see the lady in blue waiting. He turned as if to go through the door to another car, and she freaked out. Stop, she cried. You can't go in there. 
She almost shoved him down in her attempts to get between him and the door. He lifted his eyebrows and held up his hands in surrender. Then he headed back down the aisle. Instead of taking his previous seat, he fell into the seat next to me. Please return to your seat, she said, and he ignored her. Young man, where are we? He demanded. Where are we going? She strode to the first seat of the car, where the man in the same type of blue uniform sat. He turned to look at us, and they whispered behind their hands. What's going on? Jake said. I can't remember. My head is killing me. Mine too. You think we were drugged? He looked at me, then at the little girl in the seat in front of us. But why? The last thing I remember is Mr. Greeley yelling at me. He yelled at you for sleeping in detention? That's right. You're Hannah. I have a bad feeling, he said. We need to get off this train. The two employees still watched us. Jake lowered his head and said, These kids, they're from our school and the younger ones. He tipped his head at the girl. I think they're from the daycare next to our detention room. I looked at the girl, surprised. Mrs. Campbell's daughter? Allie? A voice came over the loudspeaker. Approaching stop 105. All passengers remain seated unless a service member directs you otherwise. Only people with tickets for stop 105 will be allowed to disembark there. Do you have a ticket? Jake asked. And before I could look, the two service members in our car moved quickly down the aisle, closing the blinds over the windows. Jake tried to stop the man from closing ours. Leave ours open, please, he said, and the man closed it anyway. Jake reached for it, and the man grasped his wrist. Don't touch that, he said, and for a moment, his eyes flashed black. There are things on this journey you do not want to see. Stop 105 holds many of these things. In fact, you do not wish to see any of the stops until we get to stop 110, he smiled and said. Enjoy your ride, sir. We watched him walk away. Did you see that? Jake hissed. His eyes. Yes, I whispered. And hers were the same earlier. I thought I imagined it. The train lurched to a stop. No one from our car is disembarking at the stop. The lady in blue announced with a smile. Perhaps you should close your eyes and nap. It'll help pass the time. She took a blanket from the overhead compartment and tucked it around me. Jake refused the one she offered him. Rest your eyes, honey, she said. I'll wake you when we reach your stop. A nap. I still felt so groggy, and my head wouldn't stop pounding. Maybe if I close my eyes for just a minute. Hey, stay awake. Jake nudged me with his knee. We can't go to sleep. I opened my eyes and noticed Allie was asleep, snoring softly. All over the car, passengers slept. Some faces I knew, others were still hazy. Hannah, Jake whispered. Did you just hear that? I did. It sounded like wolves howling or moving quicker than I was capable of at the moment. Jake reached across me and opened the shade. 
What had been sunny and lush only moments ago was dark and barren. People lurched into the darkness. The yellow lights appeared, and it took me a second to realize that they were eyes. Something jumped at our window and I screamed. I had a flash of scraggly black fur and yellow eyes as it slammed against the glass. Then the man in blue was there, yanking on the shade. I told you not to touch that, he yelled. What the hell was that? Jake cried. Where are we and where the hell are you taking us? To a nicer place than this if you just listen to the rules, the man snapped, looking rattled. He stood right beside us until the train chugged into motion again. Along with the howls, I imagined I heard screaming. Jake took my hand. His fingers felt icy in mine, and I looked down. His fingers were pale, the nail beds cherry red. So are mine, and so were Allie's. We have to get off this train, Jake said. His reddened eyes and lips stood out against his pale skin. You don't look so good, he said. I was sleepy. Every time my head dipped, Jake squeezed my fingers. I dozed somewhere between stops 106 and 107, but Jake kept bringing me back. The two employees in blue still stared at us, and finally the man came towards us. I need to see your tickets, please. He didn't even try to hide the black flash of his eyes when he said, Now. I dug through my pockets and produced the yellow ticket from my jacket. It simply read stop 115. Jake searched through his pockets, yielding nothing. <laughs> what can I tell you, man? He said, if you tell me how I'd got on this damn train, well, then I might know where my ticket is. The lady in blue approached and the man hissed. He doesn't belong here. I told you so. Her eyes widened and her mouth gaped. It's impossible. He's too strong, the man said. He cannot stay on here. The woman frowned at us and pulled the man away. We watched them engage in an animated conversation. They're going to kick me off, Jake said. Well, then I want to go with you, I said. Please don't leave me. I won't. He promised and squeezed my fingers. I don't know where we're going, but I don't trust them. He glanced out the window. I used to like trains when I was a kid. This one seems kind of slow. I figure we're doing about 80 miles per hour. If we try to jump at this speed, we're probably dead. But have you noticed how much it slows when we're approaching a stop? We have to be close to stop 109 now. Maybe we should take our chances, you know, jump when we get close. But he said we don't need to look outside before we get to 110. What if those creatures are there? What will we do? Jake looked up at the couple in blue that was still talking and looking at us. A third large man in blue had joined them. I don't think we have much choice. I think they're about to kick me off. You coming with me or are you staying? My hand felt cold and clammy in his, but I squeezed his fingers. I'm going. The voice over the loudspeaker announced we were approaching stop 109, and the train began to slow. Jake moved fast. He jerked me up and half dragged me down the aisle. 
I glanced behind me and saw the people in blue running towards us, but he caught them off guard. He reached the door in the back of the car and threw it open. Hand in hand, we jumped into nothingness. I woke to the beeps and whir of machinery, cold and the smell of pine disinfectant. Something covered my nose. I fumbled at it, only to feel a warm hand covering mine. I expected the lady in blue, but it was a different face that hovered over mine. My eyes burned when I recognized my mom. Hannah? She cried. Grant, get the nurse. She's awake. To me, she said, honey, just be calm. Leave your oxygen mask on. You're okay. She covered her mouth with her hands and her eyes shone with tears. You're going to be fine. What happened? I gasped. The furnace at your school. There was a carbon monoxide leak. It hurt a lot of people before anyone realized what was happening, especially on the bottom level. Your classroom, the daycare, she shook her head. But you're going to be okay. They found you in a doorway with some boy. The two of you made it outside before you collapsed. That's why you're alive. Jake? I whispered. Is he okay? My mother nodded. He is, and he's been asking for you. She left the room and I lay there, trying to remember what had happened. Trying to piece together some crazy dream about a train and workers with black eyes. My mother wheeled Jake into the room. He smiled at me from under the bill of his Boston Red Sox hat. Hey, you, he said. You really scared me. Mom smiled and parked his chair by my bedside. I'm going to grab a sandwich with your father. I'll let you two talk. What? What happened? I asked. He frowned. I don't remember much. They said there was a carbon monoxide leak. We were the only ones from that classroom who made it out alive. I remember holding your hand, trying to get to a door, but that's about all. I wanted to ask him about the train, but that would sound crazy, right? He shook his head. What's the last thing you remember? I remember Mr. Greeley yelling at you for falling asleep. Yeah, I couldn't keep my eyes open, Jake said. I guess it was the poison that was already hitting me. I'm not sure how I even woke up enough to get out. He reached over and squeezed my hand. I looked down. Our hands were pale and the nails were still red. Now I had had a crush on him since 7th grade. I couldn't believe Jake Marlowe was here, holding my hand. I laughed. <laughs> I dreamed about you. I dreamed we were on a train. And you saved me from these weird black-eyed train workers. Jake's already pale face blanched. Train? He said. He pulled his hand from mine and rubbed his hands over his face, accidentally dislodging his hat. He grabbed it before it hit the floor. What the hell? He whispered and extracted something from the inside of the ridge of his cap. He held it up and we both stared at it. It was a simple yellow ticket with the words STOP 115 printed in black letters.
I used to go diving a lot. Not so much anymore, but a couple of years ago I was really into it. Had my license and everything. It's really beautiful down there. The pale patterned sand, the water washing away the distance like a blue mist, and flashes of the brightest colors you'd ever seen as some fish dart into view. I've done my fair share of exploring wrecks and grottos, but my favorite thing to do is to hover right where the shelf plunges into the deep. You get the greatest dynamics there as deep sea creatures come up to feed. Anyway, one time I was drifting along near Antigua, about 40 feet down. I had two tanks with me so I could stay down for several hours. The shelf sloped off to my left, and rocks and coral broke the monotony of the sand to my right. I hadn't seen much that day and was getting a bit bored, but then I noticed a large octopus. It was a deep sea type, probably washed up accidentally. They don't usually come up to hunt. It seemed sluggish and didn't react much when I drifted over to it. Now octopuses aren't very friendly creatures. If you manage to get near one, they usually flee within seconds. I'm sure you've seen videos of them changing color to match their environment. But not all species can do that. But they're all very good at hiding. So seeing a deep sea octopus up close was quite an opportunity. It was about a foot from crown to beak and dark molted green. Its tentacles curled around it, perhaps four feet long when extended and pale on the underside. Its eyes looked like golden rings around narrowed black pupils. It was having trouble moving and looked half dead. I decided to try to get near it. There were some yellow-tailed jacks nearby, and I speared one with my knife. Now, I'm sorry if that offends you. I'm not one of those touch-nothing divers. Cautiously, I approached the octopus and offered it my fish, shoving it out ahead of me and letting it drift toward the creature. It was a success. It didn't run, but lazily reached an arm out to capture the morsel. It brought it under its beak and began to devour it. I drifted closer, trying to acclimate it to my presence. Over maybe a half an hour or so, it became more lively and used to me. Apparently, I had bought its tolerance with my offering, and it even began to play a little bit darting away from me and then back. I had a stick with me that I used to test holes and mud and such, and it occurred to me that maybe I could teach it to play fetch. I brought the stick out and waved it until it seemed like I had its attention, and then threw the stick out sideways. Now, I didn't go very far underwater, of course, but the octopus went after it and grabbed a hold with its tentacles. It didn't seem inclined to return to me, though. So, I swam closer. It was waving the stick at me, and then it tossed it out to the side. It was copying me. I retrieved the stick, and then an interesting idea came into my head. Next to us was a large flat rock covered in a half an inch of mud and detritus. Careful not to disturb the layers... I took the stick and slowly drew a crude figure of a man, two legs, two arms, and a round head coming off a central cylinder. 
the octopus seemed to be watching with interest. I tossed the stick and it caught it easily. It sat there toying with it, and for a few moments I thought my expectations had been too high. But then it reached out with the stick and began tracing its own mark in the mud. It was even cruder than mine, to be sure, but clearly a drawing. However, the proportions were all wrong. It had fused the head and the body into one ball, and there were too many legs. I was just happy it was copying me. I'd heard octopuses were smart, but this was really something. But then it hit me like a freezing wave. The octopus wasn't copying my drawing. It was drawing itself. The implications for this were huge. If I had had a video camera then, I'd be a famous man today. The only other animal I'm aware of that's capable of imagination and self-awareness to do something like that is the ape, the first cousin to humans. That the ancient octopus, without so much as a spinal column, had the mental capacity for such a feat would surely have turned biology on its head. However, I didn't have a camera, and the scientists I've told my story to greet it with understandable skepticism. I would put all my time into trying to prove it myself, but I just can't bring myself to go diving anymore. Once that realization struck, I got excited. The octopus passed the stick back and I began drawing other sea creatures in common sights. We kept on for maybe an hour, and the octopus contributed as much as I. It even drew something I took to be a crude figure of a submarine, with a calm tower, propeller screw, and even torpedo holes. And finally, the octopus led me to the other side of a rock, a blank canvas. Far down in the corner, it again drew itself and then me. These figures were very small, maybe an inch or two tall. Then, painstakingly, it went to work on a much larger drawing. Now at first I thought it was a whale, but whales are roughly the size of submarines, so it didn't seem to justify the scale. Furthermore, the proportions were all wrong. This seemed like something more humped and compact, almost as if it were upright rather than aquiline, and it had weird bits sticking out of it that didn't seem like fins. I couldn't place it. An oil platform, maybe. No, the lines were too natural, and an octopus wouldn't know what the top of a platform looks like. When the drawing was done, we both sat and looked at it for a while. I took the stick back from the octopus and circled the drawing of us, and then drew a line to the thing. I'm not sure if the octopus picked up on my confusion, because it just sort of sat there for a while. It didn't try to take the stick back. Then it started swimming away. I followed it at a distance. It seemed to be keeping a pace, leading me on. Then it turned and shot out into the deep area off the shelf. I was a good way through my second tank, and wasn't supposed to go any deeper, so I had to let it go. It stopped once to watch me, and then darted off, dissolving into the dark blue depths. I looked after it for a few minutes to see if it would return, 
but there was nothing. And so I started watching the other fish and making my way slowly back to the boat. And then, suddenly, there was a low thrumming sound all around me. It wasn't very loud, but it was big, as if it came from the ocean floor itself. I've heard of underwater eruptions, but I've never been in one, and I wondered if I were about to be. But this didn't sound like anything natural. It sounded like the call of some animal, slowed down into the virtually subsonic range and projected from huge speakers from very far away. I've had a chance to look over the seismograph recordings for that day, and nothing shows up at that time for that frequency. I have no idea why. Fish were going crazy, darting back and forth and all heading inland, and not just the reef fish, larger ones from deeper in were streaming by me even faster. And suddenly, among them, the octopus appeared again. It were one quite like it. It swam up on me and eyed me strangely, then darted past with the rest, and the thrumming sounded again. Looking out to sea, I gradually became aware of a large, dark patch. It was very hard to tell how big or far away it was, but there was plenty of both to go around. It was hard to tell more than just a shadow in the murky water, but it clearly wasn't a whale or anything man-made. I couldn't even tell if it was a single creature. There seemed to be long strands like kelp or jellyfish tentacles streaming off of it, but immeasurably larger. It looked like nothing so much as an ancient misshapen section of coral reef broke off and started floating. At least the part I could see, it seemed to fade off into the distance as though that mass, immense as it may be, was only a limb to some far larger entity. Now, I've never seen a naval aircraft carrier from underwater, but I imagine that's the kind of shadow it would cast. The thrumming rang out a third time. An unreasoning fear seized me. I didn't appear to be in danger, though the thing was incredibly vast than anything I'd ever seen. It was too far away to reach me quickly, and it seemed like it wouldn't fit into the shallows anyway. Nevertheless, I was gripped by the feeling that if I didn't get away as fast as I could, I would be dragged down into the abyss and consumed. I could feel the very water itself drawing me down into that black maw. Heedless of the depth or my equipment, I surged upwards. As I rose, of course... I began cramping, but I clawed my way up anyway. I was still far from the boat, and when I broke the surface I could barely move. I had to keep my mouthpiece in because I couldn't keep my mouth above water. I certainly couldn't call or signal the boat. And far from receding, my panic was worse than ever. From above the water, I couldn't see the thing or tell whether or not it was coming for me. I thrashed my slow, painful way toward the boat, and finally someone on board noticed me, and they came to pick me up. I had the bends bad, and had to stay in a hospital for a few weeks until I was over it. 
The doctors tell me that I was lucky that I didn't get a stroke or some other permanent damage. So, that's my story. I'm sorry I can't give a more satisfying conclusion. I still don't know myself what I had experienced. My friends think it was some form of rapture, but it just doesn't match the symptoms. Narcosis is supposed to reduce anxiety, not stimulate it. And my hallucinations, if that's what they indeed were, were too vivid and specific. Anyway, since then I've been afraid of the water. I tried going out once or twice, but all I can do is stay shaking in the boat. I think there really was something out there, and I don't think it's something I ever want to come across again. <laughs>